Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, congratulations. You're about to arrive to the right place. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Ellen and Aaron's Sportsbook Yes. Are you ready for it? Now, here is Ellen and Aaron. Hey, good evening, everybody. It is Friday, August 5th, 2022, and this is the Alan and Aaron Sports Talk Radio Podcast. We're delighted to have our listeners uh, in here tonight and got a lot of things to get to. Uh, Alan is here with us this evening. Alan, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Really glad to be with everybody on a Friday evening. We're going to have a great show and great time, and boy, it's always a pleasure to be on the Alan and Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show, and definitely... Uh, we're going to go ahead and give a shout-out to our sponsor. I'll let you do the pleasure of doing that. Yeah, uh, we are uh, certainly very happy. Almost uh, six months now that we've had uh, Chef Keith Barbecue Sauce as our official uh, sponsor. So uh, as uh, as we say every week, uh, Chef Keith Barbecue Sauce is so delicious and addicting that you may need a support group. And for the next uh, hour, hour and 15 minutes or so, uh, we're going to be the support group here tonight. Um, if you've got uh, barbecue sauce on the brain, like I have uh, most days, this is the right program for you to listen to. Um, four delicious flavors. I've tried all four of them. I know you have, too. Uh, my family and I love to, uh, you know, use it on pretty much everything, whether it's barbecue food or just dipping French fries in there. So, um, you know, food is a, a very important thing, especially in the sports world. You go to a sporting event, whether it's a football, basketball, or baseball game, food is going to be something you end up purchasing most likely while you're there. So when you have a great barbecue sauce like Chef G's, it just uh, makes that experience all the more better. That's right. Big shout-out to Chef G's Florida Barbecue Sauce. Really appreciate you being our great sponsor, and he's the sponsor for today. But uh, we're going to go ahead and kick off the show and really invite you guys, if you want to go ahead and give us a call at 516-418-5572. Again, it's 516-418-5572. Really appreciate all the callers. And uh, what we'll do is uh, we're going to actually start, I guess, the broadcast on a little bit of a somber note. We're going to pay tribute to two legends in their both of their sports, respectively. Uh, we'll start with the unfortunate passing with Bill Russell, 11-time NBA champion, and just uh, somebody that is well-loved throughout the league, really miss him, and let me start with you, Aaron. What are your thoughts about the unfortunate passing of Bill Russell? Well, I mean, what a great years. Uh, we should all be, you know, hopefully blessed to live that long. Um, you know, I, I think of, of Bill Russell, and obviously he played, you know, well before my days of watching NBA basketball, um, you know, back in the, the 60s, I think into the 70s, if I remember correctly. Um, but you talked about it there, 11-time NBA champion, there was no other athlete in any other sport that won at the, at the highest level of uh, professional that won as many titles as he did. The closest would be Yogi Berra, who won 10 World Series titles with the New York Yankees uh, in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So I think that he, uh, Russell, that is, is the ultimate team player, um, part of some great teams. I mean, the Celtics back uh, in those days were – about as dominant as any franchise has ever been in any sport. At one point, they won eight titles in a row. 
I mean, you think right now that you know people hate the Alabama Crimson Tide, or they hate the Patriots for what they've done over the years, or or you know the Golden State Warriors and how they've been dominant over the last several years. If that had existed today, where the Celtics were, you know, all those years ago, um, you know, it'd be just a, a crazy scene. So, um, you know, a great team. Um, and I believe I may be wrong on this. I believe he is the the silhouette of the NBA icon, uh, the NBA uh, logo. If I remember correctly, he's the one that they used to um, put that logo together. So, um, like I said, a great life. He, he is. I saw this or heard this somewhere recently, uh, shortly after his passing last uh, earlier last week, that he is the only. NBA player to win. I believe he won a national championship in college. Of course, all those uh, NBA titles. And also won a gold medal in the Olympics. Um, so you consider, you know, how rare a feat that is. It's kind of like the triple crown, if you will, of, of winning a lot. And there was another factor, uh, factor or factoid in there, and I'm forgetting what it is specifically, but it was somewhere along those lines that something that he had done that no one else had ever accomplished. So, um you know, certainly, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, obviously, uh, long life, uh, 88 years, and uh, you know, he, he's uh, another icon that we've lost uh, in the sports world. It's um, you know a sad thing, um, maybe not a surprising thing because he was 88, like I mentioned before. But nonetheless, you know, you think back on athletes after they pass away, or you know, famous people after they pass away, and you start thinking all those great memories that they. Um, you know, left, and, and he's definitely one of them. I, I would say he's definitely a top ten player of all time in the NBA, maybe even top five. I I, I would want to hear other, you know, opinions on that, but I I definitely think um, he, he left a lasting impression and a lasting legacy. He sure did. I mean, you're right. You know, to your point, if, if you had a player of his dominance playing today, it would be almost too much for people to bear. Look how times have changed because yeah. – that's way before social media, the internet, and 11 championships. That's just remarkable. And it's just uh, something that that's so rare to find. And he's such, like to your point also, he's such a great team player. He can shoot, but he really got a lot of his championships by playing solid defense and rebounding. You know, he just revolutionized being a team player. Passing is an awesome passer. And that's what, you know, he played just to make sure he won. And not only did he beat you by his physical attributes, he was a real smart basketball IQ man. He knew your movements. He knew your tendencies. And he perfected his craft. And that's a lot of things that a lot of people don't understand, that if you want to dominate and be a champion, you got to win not just the physical battle, you got to win the mental battle. You got to know your opponent, you got to stay poised, you got to know when it's good for you to step up and when it's time for you to, whether it be an offensive, defensive, and what I really appreciate about Bill Russell, too, is that he stayed connected to basketball. He didn't kind of like retire and then people kind of forgot about him. It seemed like he had just as much fun after retirement, hanging out with the fellas, going to NBA awards ceremonies, Kobe Bryant, LeBron, Michael, they all revered him, all respected him. It's really a beautiful thing to see. It really is. He's surely going to be missed. He looks like a great guy, down to earth. And may he rest in peace and 
they said he died peacefully in his sleep. He deserved to go in a way of, of peace. So I, I did want to bring on one of our great, great callers. And also, he's a MVP, Lou, and get his thoughts. How you doing so far tonight, Lou? Thanks, guys. All right, but after a week like this, I mean, oh, man. I mean, we lost not one but two Ray of Legends. Of course, even though I am not, you know, a Bill Russell fan, because I was never a Celtics fan, but, you know, I won't deny, of course, the greatness that he did. Uh, you know, eight eight titles in a row, that's something Jordan will never touch uh, from one uh, MVP. I mean, uh, and, you know, just, you know, just, you know, out, out to everybody, you know, in his era. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It's it's just uh, he outdid everybody in his era, and you can't take that away from him. 11 championships to 11 championships, and, you know, that's the thing. He did it before Michael Jordan, before yep. the guys that are playing now did it, and he did it in an era where, you know, you can do special things. It's just um, you got to be a team player. You got to be a team player, yes, and, you do. That's what, and that's what I love about him is that uh, he's surely gonna be missed. And even though a lot of the times that he played where the actual players did not see him play, as far as you know, they probably watched a lot of videos and things of like that. But he wasn't a current player. But right. to give him as much respect that they did, that was really, really remarkable. No one, no one ever knocked anything he did. And you know how great people are. Even Jordan, he gets questioned. And to me, I don't really, as much as I like LeBron as a player, and I think he's a dominant player in his own right, he doesn't compare to Michael Jordan as far as GOAT. Right. He just doesn't. You know, I, I definitely appreciate I know LeBron wants us to pass Michael, and he really gave it a valiant effort. I'll give him that. He gave it, you know, a valiant effort to, to pass LeBron. Michael, but he's going to fall a bit short, and it's hard to beat perfection. Six six rings, never a game seven. Yeah. It's just hard to beat perfection. Yeah, I don't and, he, and he could have because of all the trips to the final, but he would have to have at least, at least tied, I felt, with Jordan. He would have to have at least yes. six rings, six, maybe seven. But if at least if he tied him, he would make a very strong argument. He wouldn't have to be perfect, I think, because LeBron lives in the finals. I mean, nine times mm-hmm. in the finals, he lives there. So you, I, I would be like, okay, you can lose a couple of them, maybe three at most, but not four out of nine. Not four out of nine. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the other thing, too, that I'll throw out there, I know that argument goes around a lot with, you know, who's the, the greatest of all time, at least out of the two players, LeBron and, and Jordan. The thing that I would point out, too, is Jordan didn't go chasing those championships down by leaving town and going to another team. He stuck it out in Chicago. They had some, some you know, tumultuous times at the very beginning in the late 80s and couldn't get over the hump. They couldn't get past Detroit for a while. Um, right. You know, Isaiah Thomas and, and even Dennis Rodman, who was a great defender, one of the best defenders in NBA history, uh, quite frankly, was a part of that late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, uh, Pistons team rather and Jordan and the Bulls couldn't get over that until they brought in Phil Jackson so um, my argument always and the, the, the points that I'll always make 
you know, I'm presenting this to, uh, you know, a jury who's going to determine who's, who's better, who's going to give me more points for the points that I make is 6-0 and versus LeBron, who I think has lost five or six um, titles. And Michael did it all in one place versus LeBron uh, doing it in three different places. Now, it is pretty remarkable that he has won in three different organizations yeah. as the lead player, if you will. Um, that is very remarkable. And, and, you know, obviously a lot of points scored. And, you know, the big thing, too, and I'll throw this out there as another kind of side factoid, you know, you look at the fact that Jordan took two years right in the prime of his career off, and it always makes you wonder, um, you know, if he hadn't taken 94 or 95 off, if yeah. the Bulls would have won eight in a row. I mean, it's very, very possible that could have happened. And, you know. It's very possible indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. They had a stranglehold on the league. I mean, and the thing about Jordan, he beat some really, really tough teams. I, I thought he beat the Knicks. I really thought the the the, the uh, Jazz, the Utah Jazz, especially the second time they played them. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought it was lined up with him having Malone and Stockton. I thought it was lined up very good for them to win at least a second time from the first time knowing that they was giving it everything they could, the Utah Jazz, and for him to beat that team to complete the three-peat was just yes. remarkable. Well, and you go to the first three-peat that they had, um, 91 was against uh, uh, Magic and the Lakers, uh, and then 92, I believe, was against um, – yeah, 92, it's been such a long time ago. Help me out here. Wasn't that against uh, – the Cavs. Uh, I'm talking about the NBA Finals in '92. So the, the second, second of the so the first three peat. So the second team they played in 1992. So in other words, the team they met in the finals that year. The Portland Trailblazers. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Portland, and I think in '93 they played uh, the Phoenix Suns. Phoenix. So you're talking, you're talking about you, know, you think about the the players you're playing against. You're playing against. Um, Magic Johnson, obviously a Hall of Famer. You're playing against, um, obviously, Barkley, and they had a really solid team there in in Phoenix uh, in really the whole entire mid-'90s, especially once uh, Charles Barkley got there, and then Clyde Drexler uh, with Portland. I mean, that was a a solid team they had up there, too. And that second three-peat, obviously, was really remarkable. Um, And you mentioned there the second one, the last one that he won there – was the one that I really thought that uh, they were a little bit almost mismatched. I really thought that, you know, it's hard to beat a team that good two times in a row. Um, and I really thought, like yeah. Alan was just saying, you know, you got Stockton and you got Malone. And there was a time where it looked like that series was going to go to Utah. And Jordan really yeah. stepped up, obviously. So um, That's right. So those are my points. Um, I, I – I, I think it's the the younger crowd nowadays that tries to make the the comparison and and you know oh LeBron's a better player but you know I always just shake it off and I give out those facts right there and usually that shuts them up so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I pretty yeah. much agree and, and and to LeBron's credit he is going to have a a bunch of records before it's, it's time to go he has an outside shot of getting Will Chamberlain's all time scoring record if he plays if he stays healthy for yeah. another year that's that i mean that's 
Man, imagine that. You're having the all-time record for scoring? That is a remarkable achievement. Yeah. So I think I think LeBron is going to have a very unique and special career, and he will be on Mount Rushmore, but I just could not put him in the category of GOAT. I, I just couldn't. And definitely a remarkable career either way you look at it, but very different. You know, it's, it is different times than it was when Jordan played. A lot, you know, people leave teams rather easily. They didn't leave as quickly, I felt, when Jordan played. But um, Bill Russell is, is definitely going to be remembered. May he rest in peace. And we're going to get your thoughts also, Lou, on Ben Scully, his passing. Yeah. Yeah, before I do that, like, you know, um, you know, every time I feel one of the great players, you know, has, I feel like I've been on the – born in the wrong era, you know, missing all those great players as well. So that's the other thing I wanted to make. Yeah, you're right about yeah, that. You know, I was born, good point, you know, yeah. I came, after he, I came after he retired, so, you know, I missed a lot of the good players that, you know, played before the game. They made the game great. So anyway, on to Ben Scully. Hey, if it wasn't for guys like him, there wouldn't be guys like us doing what we that's do. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You think that That's way. a great point. That way. He's a god. He's a godfather. Yeah. Yeah. What a remarkable career, too. I mean, you think about exactly. sixty-seven years. I mean, none of us are even close to that in age. Um, yeah. At this I never point, even so six, to... yeah, sixty-seven years yeah. with one organization. I mean, he was even with the Dodgers when they were still back in in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Um, you know, back in the the nineteen was it the late 1940s, early 1950s. I think he started in 50s. Yeah, well, I think it was back, I think it was back in the 1850s. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, just around the time the dinosaur era passed out. So I think that's yeah. long he was uh, there for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. But you know, calling, I, you know, yeah, calling the ahead, World sorry. Series games and whatnot and everything. So, I mean, he did yeah, it all. He sure did. What a remarkable career. Thank you know, for, for Vin Scully. He actually called Don Larson's no hitter yep. in the World Series. He not only did he call these games, for him to be in the building as some of these monumental plays is fascinating to watch it live. You know, he, he called Don Larson perfect game. He called also when the late great Hank Aaron, you know, passed Babe yep. Ruth. He called that one. And he and he called the the home run for Kurt Gibson, another yep iconic moment. Yeah, yeah. These are like different decades. And the uh, and the biggest and the and the biggest blunder of all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Bill Buckner, uh, first base in the '86 World Series. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many big moments, and they were, they were, they were listing these on. Uh, MLB Network uh, the other day, and there was a few things that were posted on Facebook as well. Um, you know, Alan, you mentioned there uh, the Don Larson perfect game. Um, yeah. Several other no hitters uh, over the years that he called. He called twenty. But, he called twenty of them. Twenty, yeah, twenty no hitters wow. over the years. Fifteen different yep. World Series. Uh, obviously, um, that was just on the radio side of things. He called um, the Dodgers uh, World Series championship in nice. I think it was 70, 76, 77. I wasn't around then, so no, I remember no. it. So. 
<laughs> uh, 70, yeah, maybe, no, because maybe 80, that because 76 was the Reds and 77 was the Yankees. Yeah, so it would have been 80, 80 or 81. I think it was 81. 81, um, 81. Yuck. But he, he um, you know, and I wasn't aware of this until I actually watched a video on Thursday morning, um, or it might have been Wednesday morning, um, of some of the other World Series that he had called. A lot of times, and it has changed a little bit in recent years, but a lot of times, you know, you have Fox who does the World Series, and then you have, you know, a secondary carrier who has the official audio of the World Series. And so he called, I didn't realize he called Atlanta's 95 World Series uh, on the radio for, I want to say it was probably CBS uh, radio at the time. But there's a couple of games in there that I don't think people realize he was a part of calling. Um, he called Kirby Puckett's uh, 91 uh, game six game winning home run uh, in the World Series, but he did also call. Jack Buck called that on television. Yeah, yeah, he, he did. Um, we'll see you tomorrow night. Uh, we'll but see you he called night. in in 1981. It was the 1980 season uh, NFC uh, championship or NFC playoff game. He called the the Joe Montana uh, pass to Dwight Clark in the back of the end zone. A lot of people don't remember that. Yuck. So, um yeah. One, one of, that, that, that was what started a dynasty for the 49ers in the 80s uh, was that game. Yeah. And he was uh, a big part of that. Uh, calling no, that I had did to call summer on man talk <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he did call a lot of football games uh, as well. So um, I think probably my favorite or most iconic moment, I, I, I love the, the Gibson home run in the 86 series. I think that's always yeah. – um, Phenomenal, but I, what, yeah, in 88, uh, it was game one, uh, 88 against the Oakland A's, against uh, the great closer, um, Dennis Eckersley. What I really love about him, and I, I, I put a post up on both my personal and our uh, podcast uh, Facebook page, is, you know, over our lifetimes, we can all name great, great broadcasters. You go back to the late Kurt Gowdy, uh, Jack Buck, um, mm-hmm. Harry Carey, uh, Jack Brickhouse, uh, you know, there's some great names in there. Ernie Harwell, who I personally met. Uh, Dick Emberg. Yeah, D- Dick Emberg was a great one, too. He had a great voice. All those guys are great, but none of them quite measure up or add up to, to Vin Skelly because I think he did such a, a great job of almost to the point where you didn't have to watch the game on television. You could listen to what he was describing and have that, vision of what he was describing it was perfectly in tune with what was happening on the field and i think that was what was so great about him and um he had a great sense of humor too um you know he wasn't just this dry voice or anything like that he 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 certainly you know had a flair for the dramatic and and also knew how to um to creatively joke during a broadcast so um you know i think he's the greatest of all time personally uh, I know other people may have a different opinion, but I, I certainly will stick to that uh, as who I think is uh, is the goat in in that particular area. Yeah, I, would I think mean, so too. Yeah, yeah, that's just just to be in the calling those and being and witnessing those legendary moments that you just can't draw up. I mean, it's just remarkable. And like you said, the tenure, yeah, that's going to be tough to beat and. Man, this has been a tough week with the passing of these, you know, icons. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it's just unbelievable. I mean, and then he also, uh, 
that no hitter, man, in a World Series. And he said he had yeah. 20. Which yeah, brings 20. Question, Lou and Aaron, have you ever been at a game where there was a no-hitter thrown? Either one of you? Yes. Yes, I have. Oh, wow. Describe now, it, it wasn't. Yeah, well, here's here's the, the caveat to it or the, the uh, uh, asterisk to this one. So... This was in 2015. I went to a spring training game, so there's part mm-hmm. of it. Atlanta pitch, uh, played against Houston Astros uh, in, I believe it was Kissimmee, Florida, so about an hour from where I live in central Florida. And it was a, obviously a spring training game, a combined no-hitter. It was like five pitchers. But nonetheless, a special event. Um, there wasn't any major celebrating or anything afterwards because, again, it's preseason game, if you will. And... The only thing I do remember, and I've told this part of the story on the other side of what happened, but that was the day that I and my sons, who at the time, let's see, that would have been seven years ago, would have been like nine and seven. Uh, we ran, literally, and I'm not kidding when I say this, we literally ran into Bobby Cox. We were walking down towards uh, the uh, first baseline, right field. If you go to a spring training game in most parks, that's a great area to get autographs, especially as players yeah. are are congregating and walking by. Earlier in the day, we had met Dale Murphy. Um, Justin Upton had run by, and I remember him giving me a high five as he ran by with his, uh, his glove. He kind of poked it out. So we'd gone down to that part of the ballpark after the game had ended, and this is maybe five minutes after the final out was recorded. Mm-hmm. And when we ran into Bobby Cox, he literally uh, said, hey, I got to go. I got to go celebrate with these guys. This was a great game. So uh, it was a neat thing, a neat event. Um, I'd love to be at one you know, where it's a sold out crowd and a regular season game has a little bit more meaning to it. But, uh, you know, maybe that'll happen one day. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's absolutely right. You got to keep the faith and you're right about that. Yes, it you can do. happen. But yes. And Vin, Vin Scully is a definitely somebody who's going to be missed. May he yeah. rest in peace. And what we'll do is uh, we'll do a moment of silence to honor both Bill Russell and Ben Scully. All right. Definitely may they rest in peace. And Lou, yeah. what do you got cracking going on your show this weekend? Well, I'll have my own tributes to both gentlemen tomorrow as well. Uh, we'll go over the um, MLB uh, MLB trade since uh, Tuesday was the, was the deadline. Uh, we'll take a look at the monthly standings. We'll have thoughts on the first NFL preseason game, which happened last night. I'll also take some predictions uh, for some of the games, but we're not going to do it the way that is normally done during the regular season. I'll ask anybody who's in the crowd – to take one game of the list I'm mentioning of your of your choice that is and send uh, you know you tell me what you know what it's gonna be. That's how I do in the preseason. We'll do the all the picks once the regular season begins. So I do a little differently in preseason. And uh, we'll also have a little thing for you uh, old time WWE fans. Uh so let's see if we're gonna give it a little bit of some flair as the case may be. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you got it. You got it, didn't you? I did. Yeah. You got it. Because some, like, 
because some of my uh, colleagues last night didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. They weren't on their yeah. game. They they weren't paying attention. No. Well, then again, they're younger than I am, so it's, that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they didn't get the reference. Yeah, they didn't get, they didn't get the references right, and they call themselves wrestling fans. Ah, please. One thing that comes to my mind, though, is what is a guy who's 175 years old doing in the ring, though? Come on. <laughs> really? 175 years old. He was fighting when the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth. So, you know, how did he really? And he tag team with his son-in-law. Hmm. We'll figure that out. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Must be, in the, must be in the will or something. Hmm, maybe. So we'll have all that. Uh, we'll have some. Um, uh, we got some. Actually, had some NHL moves that were made over the past weekend, uh, including uh, our New Jersey Devils. So, may want to look into that. Uh, NBA, and we'll also talk some. Yeah, NBA. NBA. Um, we'll try to get some UFC. They'll get the Steve to take care of that part. So all this and more on the Enhanced Sports Show. We keep rolling on, guys. We're not, I'm not taking any breaks until Thanksgiving, unless if I get hit by a bus or something. Um, the number to call is 512-543-4662. Again, 512-543-4662. And remember, we go by East Coast time, so it's 5 to 7 p.m. East Coast right here. So keep that in mind. It's not 5 o'clock in the Central Time Zone. It's not 5 o'clock in the West. It's not 5 o'clock in Australia. It's 5 o'clock here in the New Jersey area. Awesome. Yep, that's right. Big Lou, the Enhanced Sports Show, between 5 and 7, Eastern Standard Time Zone, tomorrow on Saturday, 512-543-4662. And that's 512-543-4662. our fifth year. That's right. You, you know, definitely catch oh, it up there. Yeah, so time is going by fast yeah, when you have having fun. My fifth year. I mean, I was not the original host, so but it is my fifth year. Yep, that's right, Lou. So keep doing what you're doing. As long as people like me, I will. That's right. <laughs> well, as long as as long as in good health and good spirits. Because last week, I don't know, you guys. Um, after I uh, called this show, I had a little bit of an unfortunate incident. My Facebook page was hacked. Uh oh. Oh man. Yeah. Sorry to hear so that. So I don't even have I... a show last week, but uh, but um, well, but it's okay now. I'm glad you got that fixed. You know, definitely. So I had I. my Twitter my Twitter account hacked, and I finally got I got it back. But I lost I lost all my followers. I had like 2,000 followers. Now I'm back all the way down to well of 13. At least I'm thankful for the 13. Yeah. That's what I had to do. I was able to get my username back, but they're like, you can't have all your followers back. So I'm like, uh. you know, it's probably to get all those followers. Come on, man. But that's okay. We're Come gonna on, go ahead. man. We're gonna get him right. back up. All right. Okay. So yeah, if, you, if there's any thoughts, you know, I take all comments, all questions uh, for anybody. There's there's uh, no topic on the sports topic that's um, off the table, but uh, just don't be uh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a family we show, keep it clean, right? Okay, we want we want to keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Want to keep it clean. That's right. <laughs> right. But yeah. 
That's awesome, Lou. You want to make really it dirty? Call the Eleven O'Clock Show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. That well, Lou, the next thing, Louie after dark. Oh, yeah. oh boy. Okay. <laughs> oh, I better get out of here. All right, Lou. We greatly I appreciate you. Good night. <laughs> All right, Lou. Greatly appreciate. You. Thank you so very much. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good night. You are. <laughs> appreciate you. All right, so our good buddy Lou, uh, we definitely appreciate him, uh, and of course we would like to, uh, you know, uh, extend out to our listeners and our fan base to, of course, uh, tune in on Saturday nights to the Enhanced Sports Show uh, to also support our good buddy Lou there. So, uh, moving right along, he actually mentioned something that was uh, right on the uh, right on the cusp of what we were about to talk about, and that is the MLB trade deadline was this past Tuesday. It's kind of weird that now it's been moved from July 31st, which had been for 40 years or more, to August 2nd. I think it's going to be based going forward based on the number of games into the season um, that things are. But a lot of really big moves this week, and none bigger, Alan, than the San Diego Padres getting Juan Soto from the Washington Nationals. I, I wasn't sure he was going to be able to be moved in season like this, and of course, you go back about six weeks ago, and the Nationals basically said, we're not trading this guy. But then they made that huge contract offer to him, and he turned it down. And they really had no choice. They needed to get what they could for him now. And they got a haul. They got a bunch of players. Uh, the Nationals are probably going to be a pretty bad team for the next two, three years. But they got some pieces that I think will help put them back in uh, in uh, contention in you know two or three years, whatever it may be. But look at the Padres lineup now. You've got some of the best young hitters in the game. Him, I mean, Juan Soto, I've said for the last uh, year or two, is best talent in the sport. He's the number one player defensively, offensively, great hitter. It's for average. It's for power. Um, has that swag to go with it, too. He knows he's good. Um, then you've got, uh, you know, Manny Machado playing third base for the Padres. And let's not forget, uh, he's injured right now, but let's not forget you've got uh, – uh, uh, the name is slipping my mind here. You got the shortstop who's out right now, um, who will be back here shortly. So the Padres are going all in. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I actually was not surprised they, they traded Juan Soto before the trade deadline. I really wasn't. And believe it or not, it was something really minor. But if you looked into it, and it was really glaring. What it was is actually Derek Jeter. I know that sounds odd, but Gary Jeter said something in the first episode of the documentary, The Captain, and his quote was, loyalty one way is stupidity. Basically, if you're being too loyal and it's only you're being loyal, the other person's not, it's stupidity. So Juan Soto tweeted that out retweeted it, that, that comment about a week or two before the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. So that, that basically suddenly said to me, he's going to go someplace. He's going to move someplace. And I didn't know what team it was going to be, but I knew just from that comment. And then also when he won the home run derby, they were kind of, you know, basically asking him about moving. And he, he said, you know, I'm just going to enjoy – this moment right now and, and look into that. But he, you could tell he was kind of noncommittal, not saying that he's going to stay. And he was not saying he, he wasn't going to move. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So 
those subtle things to me, it might have been, he might have thought it was being coy or kind of secretive, but they stood out to me. And I was not surprised that he moved. I think um, it was a good move for getting. Both teams, I think. Yeah. Both teams, yeah. I think it was a good move on both sides. Uh, as you mentioned, Juan Soto is is very good hitter. What I love about his game is that he hits to all fields. I kind of like power hitters that are not just pull hitters, so to speak. They can hit balls out of the ballpark all over. That's a very special thing because not everybody can do that. And I like it because it's harder for you to put a shift on. It's harder for you to defend when someone can hit to all sides of the field and hit with power. So it kind of respects the, the defense has to respect you too. I think he's going to do great with his new team. He seemed like a very likable guy, uh, you know, especially during the home run derby. He seemed like he gets along with people. I just hope that he handles the pressure of this money and this move good, but I, I think it's a good move on both sides. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I knew that the Nationals wanted to trade him. However, the thing that I thought might hold it up is literally it was basically the 11th hour. I mean, it happened, I think it was late. Monday night, it might have been early Tuesday morning when it was announced. I might be a day off on that, but it was announced basically within 24 hours of the actual deadline. And the, the difficulty when you're trying to make a trade like this one is agreeing to the package of prospects that you're going to give up. Um, and I, I, I think that there may have been some discussion probably further back uh, between the team, the two teams, that they were able to agree to it. But usually that's the thing that holds it up is, you know, we, we need to make sure we're getting players that are going to be um, a, a benefit to us. And, you know, I, I think that the benefit to the Nationals is they traded him now versus trading him in the off season because here's the difference. If you trade him in the off season, whoever gets him only gets two full seasons out of him before he's eligible for free agency versus you trade him now. And not only do you have those two seasons, but now you also have this next two months plus hopefully in the Padres case, the playoffs that they're hopefully heading into for, for themselves. So you get extra pieces when you have more time with a player. So uh, San Diego gave up a ton. This is one of the biggest trades in baseball history. There's no doubt about it. Now I want to kind of hit on a point there that you brought up there. Um, you know, the, the, the Derek Jeter comment, loyalty one way is stupidity. Was the loyalty one way from the Nationals' perspective, or was it from Juan Soda's perspective? Because I, I would look at it from really the, the one-way part would be more on Juan Soda, given that they had already made a huge offer from Washington's side. I took it as it was being him being too loyal to the team he's playing for, for the, the Nationals. You know, that's how I looked at it. His comment of that, basically endorsing the comment, is saying, you know, sometimes when you're too loyal, it hurts you. And that's the point of the comment. Stupidity one way is, I mean, loyalty one way is stupidity, meaning, you know, you become blind because, you know, you're being too loyal. And it's and you're getting treated, you're being loyal to the point where it's only one way, meaning the other part of the, the equation is not meeting you halfway in the loyalty part. They're not com- committing to you. They're not all in for you. You're all in for them, but they're like lukewarm for you. So mm, I, I would I, say I, the 
I, I, I would disagree with that point only in that the Nationals made a uh, 13-year, I think it was $440 million offer, so I'm not sure where the, the loyalty would be discounted on their end. I think they, they certainly were in for, for bringing him back. I think they were, but I also felt as if, you know, I think it had a situation to do with him also trying to be in a position where he can maybe be more competitive. I mean, if you look at the standings, they're dead last. Yeah. No, and they're a rebuilding team. Let's, let's face it. They won the World Series three years ago. And, you know, you're talking about post Bryce Harper. Um, you win the World Series. You add, After you won the World Series, you, you re-sign Steven Strasburg. But let's be honest with, you, with, with everyone here. Steven Strasburg is not – Steven Strasburg we saw five, six, eight, ten years ago. Um, last year you traded away both Trey Turner and Max Scherzer to the Dodgers, so you knew once those things happened, those were more established dominoes, if you will, that were going to fall. Um, I think the one missing factor that is not being brought up here is the fact that Juan Soto is represented by the best in the business, and that is uh, Scott Boris. Scott Boris is not known to let his players re-sign with a the team they're currently with. He wants them to get the maximum contract. And so I don't think that him being in San Diego is honestly a long-term thing. I think this is the Padres going all in. Hey, we're going to spend our you know, prospects in baseball today, our, our currency in a sense. You have big money to spend, yes, but to be able to make trades like this, you have to have those pieces that another team wants in order to make that move happen. So – the Padres are like, hey, we're putting all our chips in the middle. We believe either this year, next year, or the year after, we have a shot to win the World Series with a really good nucleus of young players. And if we somehow happen to re-sign Juan Soto, that's just kind of the cherry on top. I personally believe, and I told somebody this the other day, I think the perfect fit, and I'm saying this from a baseball-only perspective, not that I'm a fan of this particular team, I think the perfect fit for Juan Soto, you'll love this. I think he's going to be a Yankee, to be honest with you. I think that short porch in right field, I think watching this guy, he's one of the fastest ever to get to 100 home runs. I think he goes after Barry Bonds' home run record as a Yankee and, you know, eventually has that in about 18 or 20 years. Yeah, definitely. You know, you never could count out the Yankees for a team of destination for most players. They have the money. They can afford it. They love to make that big splash, you know, even – Anytime there's a player of that magnitude, you cannot discount what the Yankees can do to make it happen. The short porch, the history. He obviously, by re- retweeting what the captain said, he, number one, was watching it. And number two, he obviously has to be a fan. I would think of Jeter to watch it. You understand what I'm saying? And, yep. and because yep. it's not like it's the documentary has been out for a long time and you just watched it. It's fairly new. So if you're watching it right out the gates, it's telling me you're a fan, or at least you have a very, a very more than lukewarm interest in the matter, and that's Derek Jeter and playing for the Yankees. Yeah, no, hey, that's a good point there. He probably watched the documentary. He's like, you know what? That probably motivated him to play even more <laughs> for the Yankees' his ultimate destination. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and let's be honest, too, the, the thing that's, that's changed in not just baseball, but the world of sports is a lot of times guys go to the highest bidder, and in a lot of cases, 
it ends up not necessarily being the right team for them. Let's look at A-Rod as an example. In 2000, he was at that time the biggest free agent that had ever come about in Major League Baseball, and maybe even in any sport for that matter, uh, that particular year. And he he had an opportunity to stay in Seattle. And if he stayed in Seattle, um, you know, the following year they ended up with Ichiro, and they had some other really good players there. They could have built something that was, you know, very special. Um, you know, obviously there was a chance that they didn't, but – he ended up taking the big dollars, and he, he, he spurned the Braves. He spurned the Mets, um, and he went to Texas, and it was a disaster. They were the worst team in the uh, AL West all, uh, all three years he was there before he went out to or get traded, of course, to the Yankees. So there are some situations where the almighty dollar, you know, puts the guy in a, a bad spot where, you know, the pressure is more on them than anybody else, and – they oftentimes fail. So I, I just I, I see I I see this playing out perfectly. So we have let's see, twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four. So sometime in December of twenty twenty four, I'm telling everybody right now, especially those Yankees fans that are listening to us, Juan Soto will be signing twelve year, five hundred million dollar contract. Um he will be the brand of the Yankees going forward. I just I see it happening. And I'm I'm calling the I'm, I'm pulling a slight Babe Ruth here. I'm calling the shot here uh, about two years and four months in advance for you. So um, hopefully I'm right. Uh, you know, obviously I'm not a Yankee fan, but I just I feel like that, that's – if I'm placing him in the perfect spot, I feel like that's the best place for him to be, the biggest stage in the game, um, one of the biggest markets – I mean, he is the biggest market in the sport. So um, – and to have a talent like that on full display, it seems like it's just a, a destined thing to happen. So – We'll see what happens, but I that's my personal viewpoint on it based on what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, I definitely could see it. And, you know, one of the things that I can definitely see him being in pinstripes, you know, there's something about New York that people just uh, just gravitate to them and they they want to play there. And that's that's the thing. And to your point, you know, in life, not just in sports, if you just make decisions based on financial gain, a lot of times it doesn't go the way you hoped or envisioned it to go. When you make a decision and it's a business decision, you have to look at more than just the money. You have to look past that. You have to look at the whole kit and caboodle. And to your point, a little bit off topic is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, it finally came to light that he turned down between 700 and 800 million. We kind of knew it was close to a billion, but it ended up being between seven and 800. He turned it down because I believe that was a smart move on Tiger's part because number one, he could afford to turn it down. He's already a billionaire. And of course, if you're a billionaire, you don't like to turn around. Even if you are a billionaire, 700 to 800 million. Let me just tell you that right off the bat. But (laughs) if he, if he did take that move, it would have been career suicide for him. He he recovered from some really large falls from grace, he being Tiger. I think that would have been career suicide. He would not have – his legacy, his reputation would have been trashed and tarnished. He would have been 700 to $800 million richer, but it would have cost him a lot more than that as far as his uh, overall reputation in the golf community. It would have been career suicide. So, kudos well, to him for that. as outspoken as he's been lately, uh, too, on some of the other players yeah. going over. You know, you, you look – and this, this is the thing that I pointed out 
uh, kind of getting a little further off topic here with uh, Phil Mickelson, who earlier this year was very, very critical of Liv uh, and, you know, the, the Saudi back league, he came out and was very adamant uh, against it. And then, you know, he, he gets offered money to go over there and it's like he did an about face in such a quick manner. So I think Tiger, um, who has done a lot of growing up in his life, especially with some of the personal discrepancies that he has had, um, was like, look, I'm going to stick to my word. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I say and say what I do. And he learned a lesson from, you know, 25 other guys that basically maybe weren't as vocal about not going over there, but especially a great player who at some point in his career was on a similar plane to Tiger Woods in Phil Mickelson saying one thing. And then a few months later, you know, lining his pockets with a lot of money and doing something completely different. So um, kudos to Tiger Woods for, you know, for holding his ground there and, and, you know, be very difficult. I mean, I, I can't honestly say, I know you probably would say the same thing that if they if they'd offered me seven or eight hundred million dollars uh, that I wouldn't have said yeah absolutely sign me up you know so <laughs> yeah if if it was if I was in the same position as Tiger I would have turned it down too I'm just being frank just because you're you're that's you know you're basically worked hard your whole career to have a reputation of being the goat if not if people don't put you as a goat you're right there number two. And I, in my opinion, he is the GOAT. But you do that move, it's not going to be recoverable. You're, people forgave you for the, you know, that, you know, the scandal he's involved in. They forgave him. It took a long time. But I, don't, I think him going to live golf would have been unforgivable in a lot of people's viewpoint and reputation. And it would have been no rebound. And I, I just think – well, he's the brand of, of PGA at this point. Even yeah, though his best days exactly. are, even though his best days are well, you know, ten years or more behind him at this point. Let's be honest; he, he's only won what one or two majors in the last ten or twelve years. The majority of it happened in the first twelve, thirteen, fourteen years of his career. You are still the reason why a lot of people, especially young people, watch golf. And so, if you go and jump across to the other side. He also realized, too, in my opinion, that the PGA Tour depends on Tiger Woods. I mean, that's a, that's a fact. If, if he leaves, what happens to this great thing that he has been a part of for over 25 years? What happens to it? I'm not saying it completely falls apart. Obviously, the PGA Tour will still be there. But even in the worst year that Tiger Woods has had, he's still Tiger Woods. Um, so I, I just I feel like he he recognized the – bigger benefit to not only himself, but to the game of golf was for him to stay here. And, you know, sometimes you can't put a price on, on where you're going. And, you know, he is loyal to the, the PGA tour. He's very loyal to it. And I think it's been very loyal to him. And that is a two way street. that that is, um, that is the correct way of loyalty. Yeah, I agree. And, and yeah, and definitely your reputation, some, you know, your, your reputation to me, and integrity means a whole lot. You know, that's the thing. Like you, it wouldn't have been money at that point. It would have been, are you willing to throw away your reputation for a buck? I mean, it's not a buck. I mean, 700 to 800 million, but you are a billionaire. You have potential of making that money other places in other ways. You don't really need the money per se, but you're willing to take it to ruin your reputation. And that's what it would have been. You would have lost all 
credibility with PGA Tour, all of the things you did build over the last 20 years in your career. And I agree with you. And, and to your point, yes, Tiger Woods, his better days are behind him. The back, the age, now the knee, you know, the leg. I wouldn't even say the knee, the leg. All of that is caught up, and now he's not even physically, and he's not even in great shape now because he does have the leg injury. He's got his, his cards stacked up, stacked up against him. Would I say he would never win another major? No, I, I think he could win another major. It would have to be a situation where things just went his way. And, and now I think it's even better chance he can win a major because, number one, he's staying on a PGA Tour, and everybody's leaving to live golf. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good point there. I think that the – I think the competition level with the experienced guys has uh, has certainly changed dramatically. Now, the one thing I will say is we I think we're seeing in the last four or five years, I think we're seeing the best competition, especially with guys that are under 25 in, in golf history or in the last hundred years. I, I just, you know, there's so many guys that are 25 or younger that when the Masters occurs at the beginning of or middle of uh, April each year. Uh, there, there's a lot of guys that are maybe some people haven't even heard of that are are, are are right in the thick of things for being able to win that tournament. So I, I certainly think that um, you know his competition level or his competition against him has now changed pretty uh, pretty pretty much uh, completely different than it had been before where. Most of his competition that was going to be in for like a Masters or a U.S. Open or, or what have you, one of the majors, were guys that had been on the tour for 15 or 20 years. Now you've got guys that are, you know, barely 15 or 20 years old. Uh, just kidding about that, of course. But um, <laughs> I, I think that I think that if he's going to do it, uh, the next two or three years is really the opportunity because the thing about golf, we've talked about this many, many times, is a lot of times you're not necessarily playing against the other player. You're playing against yourself because sometimes you look up and see so-and-so had a, a birdie this hole or, you know, whatever score they're at, and you start letting that get into your head. And golf is a game about not overthinking but also not underthinking. So you really have to be very precise with your approach. And if you start letting the mental game beat you, it's really easy to make mistakes and end up costing yourself a chance to win. So, um, but I, I definitely think that I think his chances are certainly better now that a lot of these guys have left and gone overseas. Oh, I think his chances are very good now. I, I definitely do because any one of those guys, Brooks, Dustin Johnson, Bubba, Phil, Bryson, these are guys who have experience on the tour. Even Kevin Na, they have experience on the tour. So they could have a very good weekend being contention to win. Now you don't have to worry about these guys. And to your point, now you have younger guys coming in who don't have the experience as the guys who left. It gives Tiger an opportunity because you mentioned the mental part of the game. You're not going to beat Tiger in the mental part of the game. You might beat him in the physical part, but you're not going to beat him in the mental part. And I think if he's in contention with some of the younger guys, it could be kind of like how it was in the past. Guys getting nervous and scared and intimidated. It could be something like that. Whereas the Dustin Johnsons, the, the Phils, 
even they've gotten shook against Tiger, but now they're not even in the tournament anymore. And more guys, I feel a few guys here and there are going to still continue to leave to live golf. So I think if he can get right, his chance of winning have drastically improved. I mean, it's an advantage to him now to stay on the PGA Tour because he can at least get one or two more now. I feel the landscape has definitely changed with a lot of the guys going to live golf. Now, the other the other side of that would be that some of these younger players are now getting a better opportunity themselves to win, and so they're only going to be getting better as they enter their uh, prime years of their career, uh, whereas with Tiger, that physical gruel, uh, grueling you know, season that he plays out, and of course he's not going to play as many tournaments, that's going to have more of an impact. So it really puts a pressure on him to – you know, not in a situation where previously he might play another 10 years on the tour. He's probably got to do something in the next, I would think, one to two, maybe three years. If he doesn't have another major, I'd say by the end of 2025, that's three years from now, then I don't think he would get one. Because I think at that point, that competition level is going to be kind of back to where it was before um, with some of the other players that are, are going to be getting significantly better. It's kind of like thinking about Tom Brady. Um, they're about the same age. Obviously, both have had great careers. It'd be kind of like thinking, okay, well, half the NFL left and went over to play in NFL Europe or, you know, make up a league that's overseas and thinking, okay, well, that just means Tom Brady has a better chance. And, yes, technically he would, but you got to think of all these guys coming out of college that aren't going over there, they're going to be, you know, a lot more physically able to do things. So it'd be kind of a similar situation um, in that regard. But, no, I think Tiger has a great chance. Uh, but I do believe, and I know we talked about this a few months back, I think he really needs to pace where he he needs to, to strategically pace what tournaments he plays in. And I don't even think it's so much about winning normal tournaments as much as kind of keeping himself uh, stretched out and loose in some of the tournaments leading up to those majors and then really going all in when he's playing in the Masters or the U.S. Open or, or what have you. No, I agree. He has to go in and all in. He has to look at those other tournaments he plays in as just to continue to stay sharp. If he needs it, he definitely has to use load management to a T. He cannot overdo it, but he cannot underdo it where he's kind of cold and not ready for one of those major tournaments. But I think he has to look at it like that. And I think he has to set a realistic goal. My goal is to get one major per year. I think that's doable in the next one to three years, one major per year. You have one major you win, you had a fantastic, a marvelous year. You really have. So I think that would have to be more of the goal. Let me get one. One of these tournaments I got to have be in contention on Sunday. That's that's what I have to do, and I'll be able to get it done. Those Grand Slam days are over. I mean, as marvelous as that was, that was a long time ago, and that was well before you were younger, you were healthier. Yeah, no. Get one <laughs> a year. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's a very good point there. So, yeah, we went off on a long tangent there. Um, I'm not even sure yeah. where, we had, uh, where we had exited the freeway at. But... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We were, talking about the, we were talking about the Major League Baseball pennant race. And, the trades, yeah. You know, we were yeah. that up. But we're going to shift to the NFL preseason. And I don't know if you saw that story, but Tua 
got really upset that he got married, apparently got married at the courthouse, and people found out about it, and the media published it that he got married. I, I saw a little clip of it of the press conference, and I, you know what? I've never seen somebody get aggravated. He must have been watching <laughs> Dieter's, <laughs> Dieter's documentary about piracy and stuff, too, because I'm like, why are you so aggravated about them leaking that you got married? And in fact, I think that's a good thing they did that because when you get married, I want to let Tua know this, maybe you don't understand the whole thing from a guy who is married over 20 years. You're committing to one person. That's part of marriage. You're committing to just being with one person. So the more that people know that you're married, a lot of times the less trouble you're going to get into because People know you're married. Now, does that mean that a, a, somebody who's attracted to you is going to stop from going after you? Some will, but most probably won't, and some will probably be even more attracted to you because you are married. But if you get all bent out of shape because the media reported that you were married, you got nothing. You got a lot to learn because that's nothing. That's public knowledge usually when you get married. I mean, that's just comes with the territory with being a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, you get married is something like a highlight. You should be proud of that. You should. And the way he answered was like, "Well, I guess that means no girls for me." It sounded like to me it came across like, "Okay, you wanted to keep it on a down low, so you can have your side girls." That's not a recipe for for success. What are your thoughts, Aaron, on that? Well, I, and I'm not familiar with the story, so I'm basing this off of what you just basically went over there over the last minute or so. Um, the only thing I can think of is maybe he wanted to keep this secret from friends and family and it got leaked out. So that I could some, somewhat understand, you know, like we wanted to keep this a surprise and then we were going to make an announcement or something along those lines. I don't know definitively that's actually what occurred, uh, but that's just me kind of thinking outside the box there. Um, I would look at this a little bit differently, though. So a week ago when we had our, our show, we talked about how uh, Aaron Rodgers showed up to Packers camp. Um, basically dressed up as Cameron Poe and having fun and kind of joking around. And that, that shows you that he's, you know, he's a serious guy. Obviously he wants to win as much as anybody else does, but he's also confident enough in himself and his teammates and loose enough in, in what he knows he can do. That he can have fun. And this seems like Tua is a little bit too uptight. And if he gets that rattled over something like this, it's supposed to be a positive thing. And what's going to happen if he gets sacked five times in those three or four picks in a game? Um, I, I personally believe that his days as the guy in Miami at, at, at the quarterback position are probably numbered. You know, he's been in the league for two or three years now, and I like to. I want to, to succeed. I really do. I, I love, I, like I said before, I love left-handed quarterbacks. I was a huge Steve Young fan as a kid. I also loved uh, Boomer Esiason and then, of course, Mark Burnell, especially when he was with Jacksonville. Um, those guys were excellent quarterbacks, you know, Super Bowl type players and role models, uh, all three of them as well. So I, I definitely want to see Tua succeed, but I feel like the Dolphins especially are way too talented to let their commitment and kind of what we talked about before, their loyalty to a quarterback who hasn't proven anything at the NFL level really yet. If, if they let their loyalty get in the way, they could be blowing a huge opportunity because they got enough talent to be a playoff team easily. They should easily, in my opinion, with the exception of Buffalo, be the favorites to win their division um, in the AFC. And 
you know, I, I just feel like if they commit to him beyond this next year, if he does not play really high caliber football, then they're really making a huge, huge mistake. So um, I think that if this kind of thing rattles him, it just makes me question what else is going to get you rattled. Yeah, and that was the biggest thing to me. Like, if you let that really upset you, you got a lot to learn as far as being a quarterback in the NFL. I am sorry, but you're talking about that being a breach of your privacy. Listen, you don't have much of a private life when you are an NFL quarterback. Let me, and you're starting. You know, it's one thing if you're the backup and nobody cares about you. It's another thing if you're starting, and that's what you are. You're, you're the starting quarterback. I don't think it was a breach of privacy, and I'm one to say, hey, the media went too far with this or whatever it is. I don't think that was a breach of, of privacy. You should it, be no, proud it, of it. Yeah, I was going to say it definitely isn't. And here's the thing, too. You know, a couple things that I would – if I'm Tua's agent or his you know, entourage or whatever you want to call it, if I'm in that group, I'd pull the guy aside and say, look, first of all, anything you do as a, uh, as a professional athlete is going to be – publicized, scrutinized, uh, written about, talked about, brought up by both the local and the national media. It's going to happen. And the other thing, too, even as a private citizen, even if Tua was somebody that no one knew who the heck they were, it's still not a privacy issue because here's, here's what happens when you get married. You mentioned this before. That's actually a legal proceeding that occurs, especially in a courthouse. You're just basically skipping all the um, – the uh, you know the formal stuff, you know the, the rehearsal dinner and all that good kind of stuff that happens. You're basically going straight there. You're getting the documents signed by a judge. So guess what? That's something that is legal. Um, it, it's, a, it's public record, so you can't say it's a it's a privacy issue. Now I could understand where he's coming from if say they had planned a huge uh, gala and a huge uh, ceremony and the media snuck some people in and had cameras, he'd have a point at that point, but he, he needs to learn. In my opinion, again, it's one of those things where you put your foot in your mouth. You're already mad about something that you really shouldn't be mad about. And then you put your foot in your mouth by saying something that's just completely, completely untrue. It's not a violation of privacy. Uh, unless of course, as I mentioned before, you have some sort of a big uh, event gathering. So listen, if, the media can find out that J-Lo and Ben got married in a drive through wedding in Vegas. They definitely can find that you got married in a courthouse. That's just what it is. You, you know, you may not know who the culprit said, but just be, you know what, let me do what you should have done. I like to thank my brand new wife <laughs> for marrying me. I am a married man. I am committed to my wife. So all you girls trying to get after me, I'm sorry. You missed your opportunity. I'm committed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, you're not correct. Market. I'm off the market. But, you know, you know, the, other thing, the other thing this does, too, is you know, this takes away from you know, what you and I like to do. I mean, we're, we're literally spending five minutes on a story that shouldn't even be, and it's taking away from our ability to talk about the actual sport itself that's going on and – I didn't unfortunately get a chance to watch any of the game last evening between uh, uh, Las Vegas and Jacksonville, but I am 150 million percent excited, thrilled, um, whatever, that football is back. 
that's high school football uh, on Fridays. That's college football on uh, Saturdays. And that's NFL football on Sunday afternoon, late Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Monday night. And, of course, as we go into the uh, season this year, Thursday night as well. Can't, can't be more excited than this. This is a great time. Um, and just really looking forward to uh, about a month or so, a little over a month from now, the, uh, the season getting kicked off. College football is going to be big this year, too. Talking about quarterbacks. Another big distraction here. It's a completely different story. Deshaun Watson finally got handed his suspension uh, this week. And it's already been uh, appealed by, of course, the NFL. But he gets a six-game suspension. Tell me if you think that was the appropriate amount of time. Um, and if it wasn't, what do you think it should have been? I know, I no way near the appropriate amount of time he should have got. He should have gotten far more time. To me, it is a slap in the face to the women who got violated in this situation. It was clear and concise evidence as far as I'm concerned. And I felt as if people have done pretty bad things. And Deshaun Watson is way up there because the amount of people that was involved in this wasn't just one I was really shocked and disappointed that this decision came to just six games. I felt as if he should got a minimum of double digits. You know, the whole season would have been appropriate, but at least if you gave at least somewhere in the range of 10 to 12, I would have been like, okay, at least you're trying to send a message. Six games to me was laughable. It really was a slap in the face to women worldwide. And on top of that, I just felt as if, it was a waste of time. You went through all this process to give him six games. There's usually if the going number in the NFL, if you don't do something too bad, it's four games. He got two more than that. Deflate Gate got four games. You yeah. understand? To me, the six games was laughable. I'm glad they appealed it. I hope that he gets through the appeal process what he really deserves, a minimum of 10 games. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is this entitlement at its fullest because the guy got deep pockets, and this is what it is. This is the advantage, I would say, for being rich and famous and being a superstar. This is where people give you a slide, you know, like which I'll talk about a lot more. And when I show the video blog of the review of the captain. I will go through more details of what are the pros and cons of being about being rich and famous. This is a pro for him in the regard that he beat the rap that most people would have had to deal with in the same situation because he's got money and he's got fame. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he um, and I saw this uh, this meme earlier this year, uh, maybe two or three months ago, that talked about. Uh, best defenses in the NFL, and it named a bunch of teams, and then it, it named off Deshaun Watson's uh, 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 law team um, as being one of the best defenses in the NFL. How he got away with a six-game suspension is absolutely atrocious. I think it's it's awful. You mentioned before, you know, Tom Brady for Deflate Gate, which they never really actually had any hard evidence on. It was all uh, stuff that had been suggested by others. He got a four-game suspension. So you're telling me that the crime of supposedly changing the inflation rate of a football um, versus these these are crimes that if you and I committed, we'd be doing some hard time for or we'd at least be paying out the nose for. 
is only worth a six-game suspension. I find that to be absolutely disgusting and despicable. And, you know, here's the thing. You know, the Browns have been a bad team. They've had an unlucky franchise, if you will, for a long, long time. And over these past several years, I really felt like I'd love to see them, you know, finally. It'd be nice. You, know, you see the Red Sox win the World Series all those years ago, finally. Um, you see the Cubs finally win the World Series, teams that had, had had some close chances and never actually gotten there. And then you have a team like the Browns that have never been to a Super Bowl. You know, they won some NFL titles you know, back in the 40s and 50s, but never been to a Super Bowl. And you're kind of rooting for them. They're the underdog, you know, so to speak. And now you're kind of like, you know, I, I – I, I find it hard to, to pull for them because it's not their fault that they have him necessarily, but they knew about all this stuff before it happened. They knew all about these allegations against him before they acquired him this past uh, off season. And so now it's really, really difficult to pull for them. Uh, I would say at this point, I'm, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. Oh, I absolutely. I feel the same way. That's a great point. And to your point, I cannot root for Deshaun Watson again. I thought he was a remarkable talent. I love watching him play, but I now I'm sick to my stomach looking at him. And Cleveland Browns, they're X'd off my list as far as favorite as one of the teams. Like, to your point, I wanted them to at least be a contender. I didn't, I didn't want them to knock out my Bucks to win. But I wanted, you know, if the Bucks weren't in it, I wouldn't have been opposed prior to Deshaun watching arrival them being contention. I think they had Chubb, you know, they they had Baker, which I was like I didn't have anything against Baker. They they were they were making moves. You know, they were trying to get out of the doghouse into the windhouse. And, you know, I even appreciated to a large degree LeBron James even pulling for them. I will not root for the Browns. I they totally turned me off. Deshaun Watson absolutely turned me off. I am not a fan of his. I will, as a member of the media, report and be fair if he does something great on the field, but I am not a fan. And I will also even say the Texans have lost all my respect. They enabled a lot of his behavior, too. This is entitlement at its its greatest thing. Deshaun Watson did not do this by himself. He was enabled by the Texans to do a lot of his shady behavior. They knew what he was he was doing they try to cover it up too so this entitlement at its fullest and this is man if you can play it doesn't matter if you're the biggest jerk in the world we're going to find a way to keep you on the field that's what this is yeah and this goes back to the point i always try to make about uh, character and talent being almost an equal thing and in my opinion actually character is more valuable than talent um, because you can have the most talented player in the world, and if they're like Sean Watson, who his character is, you know, at the bottom level, none of that makes any any real difference. So that's just my two cents on it, and I think that's kind of what you were saying there. I'm just kind of reiterating that point. Um, but unfortunately, that's the way the sports world works. You put the talent and what they might go to do for me, um, you know, above things. It's not saying that those teams uh, shouldn't forgive those guys for what they did, but you also, if, if you're if you're forgiving some uh, somebody in this case without having them pay that price, they're not going to learn a lesson. And what does this teach to the other guys out there? These guys that are coming up from the college ranks. You know, hey, we saw uh, saw that Deshaun Watson got literally almost nothing 
uh, for the things that he did. In my opinion, the appropriate suspension would be one game for every accusation that was proven, and especially ones that he, he paid for. That, that, that would have been, in my opinion, the, the right price to pay for what he did. Um, but, of course, you know, the NFL and the, the, the Players Association, they're going to go, of course, uh, against the grain and go against that. So, um, But it'll, it'll be interesting to see if he is able to, you know, um, stay clean. Because i, I got to think in this suspension there has to be something that says, some language that says, um, you know, he's on some sort of a probation after the, uh, after the fact. Or if he does something like this again, you know, who knows what will happen. But I, I would think the NFL has to really put their foot down, especially if they want to avoid this kind of stuff happening in the future. Yeah, they do have to put their foot down. And I, I just think they just sent a poor message. It really does. To the guys who are coming up, the guys in the league, it's not really even a due process as far as I'm concerned because guys have done less and gotten more, and guys have done more like Deshaun Watson and got less. I mean, we've seen guys who got into domestic disputes, and they've gotten just about six games. So I, I just don't know where the, the line is. I, I definitely do think it's a slap in the face to the victims. You know, that's just – you know, you can do inappropriate behavior, but if you got money and you can play and you got entitlement, we'll find a way around it. You know, it's just it sends a poor message all the way around. It is definitely atrocious. Yeah, and the fact that the league is appealing a suspension or the players association rather is appealing a suspension is almost kinda to me it's almost like they're they're endorsing this type of behavior. I know they're not directly doing that, but you're basically saying, okay, well, you can do this kind of stuff, and we're gonna we're gonna back you up, um, which is really a, a difficult thing. Now, I know this is not the exact same situation, but the point I made a few months ago when Trevor Bauer got suspended in Major League Baseball for two years, by the way, a um, little bit of a different circumstance. But if you compare the two things together, it was two or three women that made accusations um, against him for some things that he had done. I don't don't want to bring up the specific details here on the show. Um, he gets a two-year suspension from the game, and then you have, what was it, 26 or 27 women that made accusations against um, Deshaun Watson. He gets six games. It just it seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime necessarily in at least one of those two situations. I'd say both of them to some degree. Um, again, obviously the, the league, sports leagues nowadays have um, clauses in their uh, – in their uh, statements as a league uh, for the players. And, of course, typically those things are agreed upon with the players association or players union so that if there is a transgression that takes place, there is a agreed upon level of punishment. And it seems like these things aren't being followed at, at this point, which I think is very, very unfortunate. And then what happens, of course, when those things occur is it makes, you know, the commissioners – look bad you either look really bad because you gave a guy too much or you look really bad because you gave a guy too little so to me i think there needs to be a governing board in each of these um each of these sports that actually puts out the suggestion so it's not one person or one or two people rather making a decision that ultimately makes the whole league look bad because think about it now the bad publicity the nfl is getting for this right at the beginning of the season by the way 
is probably going to cost some viewerships or it's going to cost some people who are not going to be participating. And I know money isn't the ultimate biggest thing, but you know, it does sometimes it ends people's fandom forever. You know, you never, you never recover from it. So I just think it's bad all the way around and it's, it's unfortunate that it's uh, not more. I definitely think it should have been at minimum a year, uh, but I would say uh, I'll stick to the one game per um, allegation or accusation that was proven, especially the ones that he uh, had an outside of court settlement with. Yeah, absolutely. I hope the league gets uh, gets on the right page. And I ultimately, I hope they get the right punishment after the appeal is done because this is just ridiculous. And, and to your point, it's like the NFL is backing up. They're taking his back by appealing it. So, which I'm not surprised they're appealing it, you know, but it's, it's just laughable. Yeah, it's almost, you know, I mean, you think about it, the Browns, I think they were prepared too. They they knew probably before they traded for him that, that there was some things that were on the table that were going to happen. They knew that there was going to be some sort of a punishment uh, let down. And that that's the thing that's even more despicable, in my opinion, about this from the Browns' perspective. It's not the fans of the Browns' fault. It's not the team itself, uh, you know, the brand of the Browns. It's not their fault. They have some of the best fans in sports in Cleveland. Um, the dog pound is, I mean, if you're an opposing team or opposing fan in that wild, rabid group of people, if you will, it's a very, very appealing or non-appealing place to be, of course. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a quarterback backing up to that end zone uh, on a Sunday afternoon. So I think the thing that really hurts so, so much is they knew all this stuff and they still made the decision to, to go all in for this guy. And it just, it really, it's, feeling in your stomach yeah you almost break the question where they just bet off just keeping baker i would say from I, think they were. I think they were i think i don't think I you mean, need a superstar quarterback to win a super bowl it's nice to have that but you think about you know and granted the last couple of years it's been superstar quarterbacks that have won the super bowl but i would make an argument against uh, uh against uh uh Rams quarterback. Why am I not able to think of his name? Um, <laughs> yes, Stafford. Uh, Stafford. I don't think he's a superstar. I really don't. I think he's a. I think he's a slight tick above Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, I think he's he's a little bit more poised because he's been in the league for a little bit longer. But I don't think he's a superstar quarterback. And the Rams were able to do it because they had a great defense and they had some big playmakers around him. So in my mind, I think that. The Browns needed to be a little more patient with Baker. I think there was a little bit of an ego on his behalf so that didn't help him out at all. Um, but you put more stars around him, you really build up that defense uh, on Cleveland's side, and I think you had a chance to be there. There's no guarantee, of course. But if you watch what the Rams did last year, that's a good blueprint for a team saying, look, we don't need a, a ego-driven you know, quarterback that's going to you know, do everything for us. We just need somebody who, who doesn't lose the game. And, you know, they wanted to go a different direction for whatever reason. So I think they kind of get what they deserve at this point. No, I definitely agree. You, you ran, you rolled the dice. It didn't work out for you. You were better off. That was a big risk getting Deshaun. You knew it. You knew the whole story behind it. You knew the facts and you pulled the trigger. I absolutely do think, the Browns were better off going with Baker because 
they were right it right there. I mean, I I think Baker, if he was getting back healthy, he actually to your point, he he's not a top tier quarterback, but he's not that bad either. And you surround him with a, you had a great running back Chubb, you had very good receivers, you were on the way, and then you made the move for Deshaun Watson, and it just blew up in your face. So. I definitely do think they were better off keeping Baker, hindsight being 2020. 100% agree with you on that one for sure. So, Yep, and then I did want to give uh, some quick boxing news updates. They canceled the fight with Jake Paul and Rahman. I, I did look at the facts involved in that fight. I looked at it as being fault on both sides. I looked at First, Rahman side, okay, you fought at professionally. You have never, you fought 12 fights. You have never fought a fight below 211 pounds. You agreed to the fight because it was such a great opportunity to get down to 200 pounds as a heavyweight to fight Jake Paul for clout, money. You agreed to those terms. You knew and also Jake Paul's team knew that it was going to be really tough for you to get down to 200 pounds. But you agreed to it. And lo and behold, you could not get down to that fight. The boxing commission felt as if a week or so into the fight, you didn't get down to the weight, and they felt as if it was unhealthy for you to get down to the weight since it was so close to the fight. They canceled the fight. And... Jake said, okay, I'll do you I'll fight you at two oh five, not the two hundred, but it's still you were still really around two fifteen. So I look at it as fault on Ramen on the fact that and I hope everybody hears this, you never even if an opportunity sounds fantastic, don't agree to an opportunity that you feel is gonna be very hard for you to make the to meet on your ends of the bargain. You understand? Like if somebody calls me to give me a great yeah. opportunity and I know that there's a good chance I'm not going to meet that opportunity and and bring my end of the bargain, I have to say at some point, okay, hold on. Before we sign up, can we alter this to this? Because there's a good chance that I may not make this happen. You have to be man enough and, and do that. I know it's tough in the middle of negotiation, but you got to put you got to put your online in the sand. And if you agree to something, yeah, that's people are going to hold you to that. <laughs> yeah, even if that's, it is that's something. 100%. That's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say that's, you're 100 percent correct on that. You know, you, you, when you go back on your word, you just really look stupid. So you're 100. percent You make a you make a deal. You've got to follow through with that, no matter what the end outcome is, because otherwise you just look silly. Exactly. I mean, even if you had to eat new rice for the time to get down to the weight, you should have. And not only that, you should not have agreed to it. If you knew it wasn't going to be possible, which I, I understand what you're saying. He said his body would not let him get down to that weight. Well, you know your body better than I did. I did the research. You never fought below 211. So, yes, that would go into what you're saying is true, that you couldn't get down to 200 or 205, then you should not have agreed to it, period. That's on you. You agreed to it. I know you try to put it on Jake Paul for trying to get you to a weight you couldn't agree to, but that is on you. Let me go ahead and take the call on the line. Thank you for calling the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show. 
Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm cool, man. I'm cool. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for asking. Really appreciate that. And I would just like, before we start, may I please have your name? Yeah, it's Naj, man. Oh, great, great, great. I'm sorry. I didn't recognize your voice at first. I'm glad you called in. But, uh, yeah, we were just oh, talking really? about boxing. Yep, we were just talking about boxing and the Jake Paul Ramen situation. Who do you feel is, in your opinion, is at fault in this? Uh, for one, the public. Okay. Uh, the public, is, and again, I know it's not popular to uh, criticize the public, but at certain points we do have to criticize the public. The public is at fault for entertaining this farce, for entertaining this person, and treating him as if he is a real boxer. So he wants every fight scaled to, <laughs> to his advantage, and if he doesn't get that, then he won't have the fight. So, you know, to me, uh, at a certain point, this is just spectacle. So the other kid decided, hey, <laughs> I'm going to try to sneak my way in here without losing the weight that I probably agreed to because I kind of wanted the money as well. So, you know, he's, his hands aren't clean in this either. But at the same time, it's like, man, come on. Like, do we really want to watch a fight where a guy – just gets crazy advantages to start with, and then when he wins, we act like he's a real fighter. So I, I, I just don't respect the whole thing, man. That, that's just me personally. No, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I felt as if looking at both sides, there was fault on both sides. On Jake Paul's side, you don't need to fight somebody two or three weight class above you to prove that you're a good fighter. You understand? You can fight someone around your weight and win a, against a pro boxer, and people are going to be impressed. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to it, – it's kind of like making a three-foot putt in, in golf. You make a three-foot putt in golf, and it's a birdie, people are going to be impressed. You don't have to make a 20-foot one to impress people. That's what I feel like Jake Paul is doing to impress the public. You don't have to do that. And, and I agree right, with the, you. The pro, the, yeah, the problem no, but, is though, his audience doesn't look at things in a real way. So his audience, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a winner-take-all you know, situation. He has to knock whoever out, and if he doesn't knock them out, then he's therefore a bum and not as deserving of all their adoration. So you know, he has to have these fights you know, shifted to his advantage. And again, like you said, though, oh boy wanted the money, man. Uh, Rock Mom wanted the money. <laughs> so so yeah. he was willing to entertain it. You know what I'm saying? So he deserves some of the blame as well. No, I agree totally. I, I totally agree. I think he deserved some of the blame too. Like I heard everything he said, and I'm like, you did everything good, but you should not have agreed to that weight. You fought, you fought 12 professional fights. You never came in less than 211 pounds. You know your body better than everyone. Don't agree to it. You understand? Yes, it right. is going to be a lot for you to get down to that weight. Like, even me, if, if you told me to get down 15 more pounds, my frame or my body will probably tell me this is not a healthy weight for you. You could probably do it, mm -hmm. but it's not healthy for you. And that's what the Athletic Commission did. And I agree with you, too, on, on the, the spectacle of, of people. I, I just think this is, this is a, a circus, what's going on. Two fights being canceled. It doesn't look good actually on, on pro boxers, too. I think Jake is at fault, but I also think pro boxers. How do you think pro boxers look in, in this situation? 
No, you're, you're right because it's, it's, it becomes a cash grab where you're saying, okay, if these are the parameters, I'll take them because I'm going to get, you know, a certain amount of clout from it. I'm going to get a certain amount of money, and then I'll be able to take that for the rest of my career into something else. So, like, you clearly see what the, where the boxers are on this. They just see the amount of viewers and the amount of people willing to put down money, so they want to be involved. But in actuality, they're hurting themselves because if this guy had to go through the ranks and just actually had to, you know, win fights against capable pros, then I think he probably would win a few. But he would also lose a few, and then at that point the shine is gone, so it doesn't, you know, become this, you know, this huge moneymaker that he is right now. So, you know, it's a difficult thing, man, because you could change your life by taking one of these fights. But at the yeah. same time, you you know what it is. Like, you're not fighting on equal ground. And he would never agree to fight any of these guys on equal ground. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and that's the thing. It, it's, it's like a, a situation where it's, it gets really complicated because most guys who have had five, ten fights are not getting multi-millions to fight someone. They're just not. They have to get to the ranks to get to that big payday. So the money is attractive. It's very attractive. And the clout, but also if you lose a fight against Jake Paul and you are pro, your career is going to be pretty much over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your, your career is going to be done. It's going to be a one and done for you. I don't see how you can recoup from that. Do you think Jake Paul is – who do you think he's going to fight next? And who do you think – do you think he actually might fight a pro? Uh, if he does fight a pro, it'll be somebody who's long in the tooth or has to take some type of weight <laughs> disadvantage or, you know, oh, wow. some other type of weight where everything leans in his face. Look, the, Jake Paul and the people around him understand what this is. Like, they're not going to kill the Golden Goose. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're not interested yeah. in risky fights or proving his medal. Like, they're not interested in that. And, and the crazy thing is the public, they say they don't care, but they comment, they like it. They're obviously following what he's doing, and yeah, they are. And as crazy as it might sound, I'm actually thinking about invite, inviting Jake Paul on the show to give his, his thoughts because the guy moves the needle. As much as people might love him or hate him, he, he, brings, he brings attention. People are following what he's saying. Look, look I, I can have my little – amateur boxing, you know, <laughs> opinion and I about what I think of him as a fighter. But as far as understanding social media, understanding how to get a crowd and all the other stuff that comes into play, oh, that dude, <laughs> that dude's a master of his craft at that. Like, that is no question. Like you said, if you were to bring him on the show, he would bring, you know, millions of people who would either listen live or listen later when they found out about it because, you know, that's the kind of ability he has to drive a crowd. So you can question his fighting, but you definitely can't question his understanding of how to uh, monetize, uh, I guess, fame. I guess that's the best way to say it, how to monetize Oh, fame. yeah. Yeah, he, I, mean, he, he, I mean, before he got into boxing, the guy had millions of followers. So he knows how he knows how to draw a crowd, and that's impressive to get millions of followers on YouTube. That is not an easy feat. So I give him props on that regard. And as as far as a fighter, I think Jake is actually pretty good. I don't think he's that bad. I think he's getting better. He trains in Miami. Guys down there know how to fight. What are your thoughts on Jake Paul as an actual fighter? 
I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, this is okay. <laughs> this is essentially uh, the guy who who pays you uh, to do sparring work with him, and you can't hit him too hard because that would mess things up. That, now, I'm not saying that's how it goes for real, you know, in a sense. I'm just talking about just you know just the power dynamics of it, like. It is what it is, man. It, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. This is this is the Facebook fallacy in real life. So you go to Facebook, somebody posts a, a, a picture, it's, it's a, them in a blue shirt. One person yeah. comments and says, oh, that's a nice shirt. And then one person comments and says, that color is wrong for you. It looks terrible. So 50 people comment to the negative comment and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Next person says, no, that is a good color for him. Uh, matter of fact, he could wear blue every day, and and the comments just keep going and going and going and going and going. So the negativity, or no matter what, the controversy is what brings the engagement. So as long as that's there, like this this train ain't stopping. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, exactly. You got a great point because that's two fights that got canceled and in a row, and it seems as if if he made an another announcement of another fight. People would jump in again, you know, because now he's got more things to talk about. Tommy Fury and Rockman, you know, canceling. And <laughs> and, and to Rockman's point, he, he did leave himself some criticism because he didn't make the weight. I don't think he was scared to fight after hearing what he had to say. I don't – it did not appear to me that he was scared to fight Jake Paul. But there was a weight concern. And obviously, it was he wasn't able to make his end of the bargain. I do agree with the commission stepping in and canceling it. It's too big of a it's too big of an advantage. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is, man. And and honestly, and we got to think about uh, Jake Paul in these terms too. There's a little bit of the Floyd Mayweather syndrome there as well, where it's like as many fans as he has, he also has people who just can't wait to the day that he loses. And they're going to keep putting down money so they can finally get that satisfaction of they had the fight party, they paid for it, and they got to watch him get knocked out. It's for, exactly. sir, so for the past, what, 20 years, we watched <laughs> all of these people. Like, I, you know, I was a fan of Mayweather, so, I, I, you know, I didn't mind watching May. But the, I, 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 would, I would always see within the fight party there would be a faction there who was only watching Mayweather to finally see him lose, to finally see him shut up. And, and that's a part of this Jake Paul crowd. You know, you, you made a great point. I, I couldn't agree more. Mayweather had that ability. He said it himself, you're going to pay to watch me. Whether you hate me or you love me, both of you are going to pay to watch me. And it's true. A large part of people would go. I watched a lot of Floyd's fights. When I used to go to any place to watch it, you would hear half the crowd wanting him to win. The other half couldn't stand him, and they were really hoping the other guy would win. If they weren't a fan of his, the other guy is competitor. They were like, please, throw that right hook. Do something. <laughs> so they were like, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Now they were like, please do something. You know, right hook. Throw something. <laughs> right, and it was so soul-crushing because, you would see the beginning of the fight be really competitive, and then Floyd start to kind of separate as the fight went on, and people would always say, "Oh, well, he, he's just running," or the other person won't run, won't, won't won't throw. And it's like, look, I understand you guys think Floyd doesn't hit hard, 
But you keep getting hit with that counter right hand. After a while, you stop trying to get inside. Like, that's just what we, – we saw this happen time after time after time. That hand – that, that right kind of hurts. It does. And Floyd, he's got skills. He's got crazy skills. You know, he's perfected the art of hitting you and not being hit. So it gets frustrating. You know, you're a boxer. You, you don't normally see a guy in a ring that can be so elusive. So after you throw punches and you don't hit him, you actually get more tired when you throw a punch and you're not hitting someone. And it's like he just – his skill set is tremendous. He just – no matter how bad you want to come in and beat him, which I feel a lot of people really had the heart and desire, they just couldn't match his skill set and his ring IQ, and he would win after win after win. Yep. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it, it, it's funny, man, because, you know, now that it's over and, of course, Floyd goes too far with the talk because he'll say, you know, best ever, pound for pound, and da, 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 da. And, you know, shout out, rest in peace to Burt Sugar and some of the older people I used to read when I was a kid. And you're like, pick up that book and you read the guys who fought before him, the amount of Hall of Famers on their resume, it's just like, okay, Floyd, you fought kind of in a down era. You don't have as many Hall of Famers as some of these other guys. I don't know if I can, I can put you over Sugar Ray Robinson and some of these other people. It's, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing, though, because in today's age, if you're undefeated, you can just say, I never lost, therefore I'm the best. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I would definitely say Floyd is the GOAT of making money. He is the GOAT mm-hmm. of of making sure he he sells fights, I couldn't put him the GOAT above everybody. I just couldn't do it. You fought people like kind of like what you're saying about Jake Paul. Things had to be in, in Floyd's bank, so to speak. It had to be all Floyd's favor for you to agree, for him to agree to fight you. That was just the, the nature of the beast. Yes, you're going to get your biggest payday, but you had to agree to his weight. You had to agree to the referee being his. It had to be in Vegas. You understand what I'm saying? He had everything mm-hmm. in his favor. When Tyson, when Muhammad Ali fought, they had to fight number one contenders. They did not have a choice. And if you're fighting the best of the best all the time, there's a good chance you're gonna get you're gonna get hit. That's just the law. Yep. That's how it is. Right. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> there you, you know? Because it's like in my lifetime, because I'm not old enough to have seen Sugar Ray and, and some of those guys. I saw Ali when he was old, so I didn't see any of that. But the best I've ever seen is Prime Roy Jones. Like, that's, that's the best I ever saw, you know what I mean, before the, the steep decline. But Prime yeah. Roy, that's, that's the best I saw in my lifetime. I'd say Prime Roy for me and Mike Tyson. I mean, Mike Tyson in his prime was something very special. And before he yeah. – the real – he, he, you know, he's a perfect example of what can happen to you if you lose focus. It happens that fast. Mm-hmm. But he, he was yep. something special in his prime. He was, I mean, he was just, he was blockbuster in his time in boxing. It was unbelievable. But, yeah, I mean. Oh, my God. Prime Mike Tyson it, with social media. Can you imagine? Yeah. And, and oh all the media God. he got before social media it would have been it would have been just crazy. I mean, the guy would have had fifty million plus followers, easy, easy, <laughs> <laughs> and he was a heavyweight too. 
and that's the thing. He was a heavyweight, and he was knocking people out. And that's right. just, you know, I mean, my, I mean, n- no disrespect to to Floyd. Floyd usually wasn't knocking out most of his guys. Mike Tyson was knocking out people, flat out, right. bigger than him too. <laughs> and the anxiety over you got the pay per view. Is this going to end in thirty seconds? Like that anxiety just hanging over the the, the situation. Like, <laughs> man, <laughs> you, you yeah. can't recreate that, man. Yeah, I mean, Michael Spinks did not want to fight Mike Tyson. You could see it. That guy was scared, scared the heck. And that fight was, what, a minute and 30 seconds? You could see the guy was just scared. <laughs> and that's the fear that Mike Tyson put in you. He really did. Mm-hmm. That, but uh, I definitely say Floyd is a great, definitely the greatest defensive fighter Definitely the greatest as far as marketing and bringing in money. I've never seen anything like that, but I could not, I could not agree with him when he says I'm the best of all time. To me, it's it's Muhammad Ali. This guy transcended the sport. He is somebody who's the icon of boxing. It's hard for me to put you over him. Yeah, transcended the sport, icon of boxing. Uh, put his career and everything else at risk for humanitarian reasons. And then, which to me is always the kicker, he fought in a great era of heavyweights. Now, this is outside of your control as a fighter, but it's a huge plus for those who experience it. So Ali in that heavyweight era of the, the 70s, like 60s, 70s, like that, that era of heavyweights, like that's a golden age. Like you can't, like you can't compare that to now to where boxing kind of loses by attrition in that so many people who would be eligible for heavyweight, they're doing, they're playing football, they're UFC fighters or, you know, something else. There's just not that amount of, there's not that amount of talent in the pool as it was back then when guys, you know, boxing was thought of as the way out. So you had so many guys wanting to be a boxer. Hell, you had gyms in every city then. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So you had boxing all over, and and he, like to your point, he cannot pick and choose, hey, I want to fight this guy because he's going to give me more money. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't do that. He always had to fight the best, which is it's nauseating, but that's what you had to be to, to be the best. Right. Like if you manage Muhammad Ali and you bring everything forward to 2022, if you're managing him, you don't let him fight Joe Frazier, period. He's tailor-made <laughs> for you, not a good match. Like, you, you don't fight him. You, you don't get the trilogy at all because why would you fight him? Exactly, yeah. You know, and you see it today. A lot of guys should fight the other guy, but it's always, well, it's always this. It's always contract. It's always, it's always an excuse. You understand? But the mm-hmm. reality is you don't want to take the risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, may he rest in peace. But Muhammad Ali did not have those choices. Right. You got to fight Ernie Shavers. Like, who the yeah. hell would sign up for that? You're a superstar yeah. fighting Ernie Shavers. He's too dangerous. You don't take that fight. But yeah, that that that's that's one thing that I don't know, man. But hopefully, it gets worked out as as some of these young fighters kind of. Uh, take over as the Floyd and Pacquiao regime kind of goes away and we're watching more Bud and, and everybody else. 
Maybe we get some more super fights. I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm glad I somebody's do. talking about boxing, man. We need more of that. Absolutely. I, I do see it is shifting a little bit. You may not get the the best of the best, but it is moving up. Like I feel like the fights now are more fights that people want to see. It may not be perfect, but I feel an upward trend that now you're getting more competitive fights where you're getting fights that, oh, okay, this guy's actually going to fight this guy. You know, it may not be the number one guy, but he's fighting the number two guy who can, if he has a great night, can win. I feel as if it's an uptick, and I think the reason why that you've seen that more is because of MMA, the pressure they're getting from MMA, that audience. Mm. Right, right. Who's used to getting the matchups that they want, which is kind of forcing boxing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. I do but see again, you. all those people who think MMA is going to kill boxing, boxing will never go away because you cannot recreate what a fight party brings to the table. <laughs> like you, you just can't. <laughs> a fight party is just a special thing. <laughs> it's yeah, always exactly. going to be there because there's always going to be a star, a villain, a white hat, a black hat. Like it, That's never going away, man. No, I definitely I agree with you. That's a fantastic point. Boxing is here, whether you love it or, or love it or hate it, it's here. And it and people who appreciate boxing and know it's a science, I appreciate it too. I know it's not easy. I appreciate the boxers that you know the box community, but it it's definitely getting entertainment. It's definitely entertainment. Hell yeah. 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 So, but what, uh, what else uh, did you get into tonight, man? Did you get into Deshaun Watson already? We did get into Deshaun Watson a little ready, but I want to get your thoughts. What are your thoughts on Deshaun Watson and that six-game suspension? Uh, the, the NFL is really good at measuring and studying public reaction, so they let it play out through the process. Got the public reaction, and then ownership sent old Roger back to the podium, and now here we go again. So they're going to do the suspension. And, again, this is not a morality league. It's a money league. So <laughs> the yeah, money is telling them to behave this way. I agree with you. I, I totally agree. It's just it's unfortunate. I think the sixth game to me was laughable. I really did, especially how long you took to make this decision to come up with six games. Guys have the slate gates, you know, suspicion, and you give them four games. You gave him six. I just thought it was just, hey, to your point, it's about money. You know, Deshaun Watson can play, so we're going to find a way to get around the suspension so we can go ahead and put him back there and huddle again. Right. <laughs> they got the backlash they didn't like, so they said, okay, we'll have to up this a little bit and, and hit him a little harder. But, like, when you think about it, Deshaun Watson was declared to be eligible to go to another team by the NFL. NFL teams came in and were interviewed by Watson, essentially, to offer up the chance to have his services. He picks a team, and they strategically make the contract to to prepare for a suspension this year. So it was already baked into the cake in my mind. So, Oh, yeah. They, the <laughs> NFL knew, and, and the Browns, and everybody knew that there was going to be a high probability he was going to be suspended. I was just surprised that it was such – a short suspension. And to your point, that's what the league is going to do. They, they're appealing this because now they're like, whoa, we're getting a lot of backlash. People are not happy with just six games, and they shouldn't be happy with just six games. I think I, – I mean, I was a Sean Watson fan prior to this, but to me, I just – I lost a lot of respect for him and the league 
for just just like trying to brush us underneath the table. And dude, see, this is this is where it gets weird though. So, like, think about it. Deshaun Watson is the golden child for the for the NFL pre this situation. This was a kid raised by his mother in one of Ward Dunn's uh, homes that Ward Dunn was doing for single mothers, the former Falcon running back. This kid was raised there, goes to Clemson as, you know, a big recruit but not thought of as a, a top quarterback prospect as far as the NFL, uh, makes himself into what he made himself. Clemson on the scene, he makes D, uh, Dabo Sweeney, uh, gets to the NFL, supposedly a church-going guy, all this other stuff, and then you find out about this dark side. And then the dark side where it's like, okay, even if there was nothing illegal there, there's some, you know, there's some moral issues here where it's like, okay, did you go beyond not having consent to do what you wanted to do? And then how risky is it for a multimillionaire to be going to people's homes alone? <laughs> like just the lack of judgment there on top of the, the, the morality, the, you know, just the, the morality of it, uh, lack of morality on it. It's, it's just staggering, man. Because then, I don't know, man. Because, like I said, I don't know if you could you could actually lock somebody up for this. Because again, it becomes he said, she said, and we're talking about at what point did they tell him to stop, and did he continue after? So, it's not the you know sexual battery or assault like some of the other cases in the NFL, Big Ben, you know, for example. It's not that, but man, it's it's really damn close. It is. I agree with you. I totally agree. It is really close. And I think Deshaun Watson was, you know, his temptation and his morality got thrown out the window because his temptation was too strong. And that's what happened. He, he, I feel as if he got away with this once and said, oh, this worked good. Let me try this another time. And he just kept testing the waters to the point where it became his normal. And it is a morality cause. I, I, I looked into the stories, the allegation, I did a lot of research. And, yeah, um, you know, this is my opinion. I think Deshaun Watson is absolutely guilty. And, yeah, he should have gotten more than six games. It's, it's, it's baffling that he could be this reckless, as you mentioned, being a superstar, being a quarterback, knowing that he's taking a huge risk. But I think he got so comfortable and his temptation got too great where he just was just compulsive behavior, just took over. And, I think he got enabled in this behavior, too, by the Texans and some of the people in his circle as well, because they knew. They knew what was going on. It's just, it's just right. unbelievable. And like you said, they, they, Roger Goodell, now they're seeing the backlash. They're like, okay, six is not enough. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board and get this up some more. And then once we get to the PR point where, say, it's 10 games or 12 or whole, the whole season, this will just blow over. Right, oh, Sheriff Roger put on his badge again. So, so now we get Sheriff Roger riding again uh, to be <laughs> to be the arbiter of what's right in the NFL. But then the, the other part about the Watson thing that stuck out about it from the beginning, like you just said, some people close to the organization, a uh, friend of the family, the the lawyer who actually prosecuted, you, you know, who actually brought forth the allegations. So therefore, they knew about it and were willing to cover up for it as long as he was playing for the Houston Texans. But then the other part is every athlete I've ever known in my life, and, you know, it is what it is. They got a masseuse 
and maybe a backup. That's it. Like anybody who, who actually needs that kind of therapy, like they got somebody who they really trust to do it, and they're willing to fly that person out to do it, and maybe they got a backup. But the idea that you're on Instagram just flipping through and picking out people like it's Uber Eats, like, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. He just, I think he was to the point where he thought too highly of himself. I could do whatever I want. I could pick out somebody on Instagram, like you like you said, you know, pick out a car. Oh, I like this. Boom, send a message. And because you're just on Watson, you can just do whatever you want. I really feel as if he started believing his own hype. He, you know, that's what happens when you're playing the NFL, which is surprising to me because you're just, you're just on Watson. You got money. You're not a bad looking guy. You should have some type of game to get with girls. You shouldn't have to do this. And you're in Houston, I might add, which like you could throw a rock and hit anyone in Houston. Like it's Houston, man. Like it would not be hard to get out there like that. But that goes to when people start talking about some of these, like, you know, dark side of some things, the power dynamic is more important than the actual contact or, or sexual whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's yeah. something off there to where you only want it that way, which becomes, right. okay, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it, it's like you said, it's the, the power dynamic, it's just that was an influence on it too. You know, I, I can do this and get away with it because I am just on Watson and it's unfortunate. I, you know, many prayers go out to all the victims. I feel as if these women got, they got the brunt of this abuse. And I hope for them that he gets an accurate punishment. Because I think this is just, they got paid off and then he only gets six games. I just don't, I don't see that. Yeah. You, you think they come back with 12 or the whole season? I think it's going to be at least double digits. I think that's what's going to happen. It's mm. going to be 10, anywhere from 10 up to the whole season. So it could be 10. Mm. I think, like you said, 12 might be more appropriate. I think they're going to probably fall around 10 games because I think 12, they'll probably, they'll probably fight against 12, like, oh, that's too many, and they'll probably negotiate somewhere in the middle around 10. Mm. And I, just to, for all the listeners out there, I'm not sure Deshaun understands how good he is going to have to be after this. Like, the Cleveland fan base is one thing. Like, that, if it doesn't go well on the field, it's going to be a hell for him out there. The road fans are going to be a whole nother – that's going to be a whole nother obstacle to deal with. But he is going to have to be MVP-level good the moment he sets foot on that field because, whoo, the backlash is going to be – Man, it's going to be heavy. No, I agree. It's going to be real tough for him. He's got to play like an MVP. He's got to step up. But, yeah, it's going to be a rough road for Deshaun Watson. But definitely, I I appreciate you calling in today. Our show is ending now. Any last thoughts you have right. for the fans? Uh, no, man, keep listening. Uh, all the fans, keep supporting this show. Uh, they always do good work. Interesting topics, and again, man, we all need a break away from the hollering and screaming on all the debate shows, man. So, you know, <laughs> take a listen to some people who are thoughtful and gonna give you good sports content, uh, like <laughs> like we this really show right here. Man. Thank you so much. We Salute, really appreciate it. Have a blessed weekend and.
but uh, definitely you do the same, brother. take care of yourself. Thank you so much. God bless. All right. We want to thank our callers for tonight. Thank our definitely Chef G's Florida Barbecue Sauce for being our sponsor. Definitely thank Aaron. Really appreciate him giving us calling, and thank you fans for listening. Remember that number, 516-418-5572. You have a blessed evening, and take good care of yourself, everybody. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Evan and Aaron Sports Talk Podcast. Subscribe and check us out on your favorite social media platform. Thank you.